2: Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, SolidarityBreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good
4: morning, everybody. Yes, good morning.
0: Good morning.
5: That was a bit of excitement. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Bit of training wheels. Yep, yep.
3: DinnerSat doing what DinnerSat does. Uh, yes. This is Annie here and we've got a whole crew of people in the studio for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. Introduce yourselves.
5: Hi, I'm Fiona. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Rebecca. Yep. Yeah. And Tilly's
3: just creeping in the door. Yes. So we've got a whole team of people here for Solidarity Breakfast. Maybe I should be thrown down by the police more often because <laughs> it means we've actually got no. a, a, a lively team happening. It's good It's good to have all you, you all here. And everybody has uh, provided uh, reports this week too. Mm. You've been Rebecca. What have you been doing?
0: Yeah, I was talking to uh, Dr. Patricia Ranald about the TPP and what's been happening over the last couple of weeks with the Labor Party uh, now supporting, well, their caucus supporting the well, allowing it to yes. go through. Yep.
3: Yeah, yeah, um, and uh, later on. We're going to get a report from you, Fiona.
5: Yeah, um, Laurie Anne Sharp, who's um, a nurse, but also um, heavily involved in the Australian Nurses and Midwives Federation Union. She's coming here to talk about the the issue of aged care, nursing homes, and the and the working conditions, and the recent camp the campaign that they've been working on long that started long before the Four Corners investigation. So, um, it's a, it's a really important. Issue. So we'll yeah, yeah, it's a very
3: important yeah. uh, issue. Uh, and later on we're going to get uh, Humphrey, Humphrey McQueen's going to come and talk to us about uh, a bit, the, the thorny issue of the impending financial crisis and what does that actually mean. Uh, no, we're not talking about... He's going to use the 2008 apparent financial crisis and he's going to explain to us that actually uh, the uh, media... Um, Uh, mirage of uh, describing it as a financial crisis is actually uh, disguising its true uh, form. But anyway, by the by, before we do, we're going to actually go to something much more local. We're going to go to uh, save Federation Square from uh, an Apple building. But before that, a few messages. Darabin Council is conducting a review of everything it does to support people over 65 and we want your input whether you're an older Darabin resident approaching retirement or have ageing parents or loved ones this review is relevant to you we need all perspectives on how we can make Darabin an age-friendly city for more information
0: visit our website on www.darabin.vic.gov.au or call Darabin Council on 8470 8470
3: to speak in your language. The City of Darabin is a 3CR supporter. I went down to Federation Square on Wednesday, it was, it was last Wednesday, and uh, there's been, a you may or may not be aware, but uh, the Victorian Government and the uh, uh, organisation that actually runs Federation Square as a business uh, is uh, hoping that they can sign um, a an agreement with Apple giving uh, Apple Incorporated a 20-year lease on the land where the Yarra Buildings are. Now, the Yarra Buildings is where the Curry Heritage Centre is. And I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, Federation Square's got this fabulous, uh, I think, I didn't originally, but um, actually it is quite a fabulous sort of rendition of a mountain range, really, isn't it? And um, if you take away that right side of it, which is the Yarra buildings, that means it's a bit like quarrying. You're going to get rid of, put a hole into the whole overall design. And uh, the picture of the uh, intended Apple building is a completely different uh, element to the entire arrangement. But there's a whole lot of other issues that are involved as well. It's about public space. Uh, is the Federation Square actually a public space or is it a commercial space? And, uh, there's been a quite a vocal and ongoing campaign against having Apple. Not that, not that Apple shouldn't be allowed to be in Melbourne. It should, but there's plenty of other sites. In fact, they were talking about how wouldn't it be much nicer if they went down to Docklands? But anyway, that's where we put everything we don't. (laughs) But anyway, by the bye. Um, Maybe
0: it would get some people down there because nobody (laughs) goes there at the
3: moment. (laughs) Well, that's exactly right. Um, And having had to go to uh, the Apple store out at High Point, which was like going into, um, you know, you need a compass, you need a a backpack and you you need to work out how to negotiate a building that doesn't allow you to walk into it. You need a a car that requires a building, uh, a car to get to. Have you ever been to High Point? It's frightening. (laughs) Some monstrosity. (laughs) It's a frightening experience. But anyway, by the way, that's where the Apple store is, one of the Apple stores are. But anyway, I went down there and I uh, collected, this is one of the speakers down there, Colleen Peterson, and uh, she has some fairly interesting things to uh, say about the whole affair.
4: All right. Our third speaker, Colleen Peterson, is working her way to the stage even as we speak. She is the CEO of Ratio Consultants. She is a leader in planning. You spend a lot of your days at VCAT, the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal. You really know how to party, Colleen, let me tell you. And you are a believer, heaven forbid, in the role of, get this, folks, town planners in planning towns and cities. And I've explained to Colleen, really, we should just leave this to developers, financiers, unions, and governments. Am I right? No. All right, I think perhaps you'd be interested in hearing from Colleen Peterson.
1: Please make her very, very welcome.
2: Well, who would have thought that a planner would be here tonight talking at the rally? Now, of course, I want to start by paying my respects to the traditional owners of the land and to their ancestors past and present. Why is Melbourne selling off its space for Apple, and what for? Will it improve our experience of Federation Square? No. 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 Will it benefit the tens of thousands of people that come here every day to experience what's got to be one of the world's greatest civic spaces? No. And will it improve, in reality, the relationship of this space with our river? Or do we think it's really about some politician getting carried away with the idea that we need Apple in Melbourne to make us an international city? Yeah, I think you're probably right. In reality, it's really hard to know what there is for us and why the state government is so enamoured in inviting Apple into Fed Square with open arms. But there's one good thing that's come out of this, and that is the loss or the potential loss of the Arab building and the construction of this Apple store has brought us together in our love for this iconic space. And I don't need to remind everyone here tonight why it's important, and that importance is in many ways intangible. It holds a place for weary tourists, for walkers, runners, cyclists, for residents, workers, festivals, buskers, and even protesters like us. There is, of course, a space and a place for commercial uses in Fed Square. Just look around and see the vibrant cafes, the restaurants, See the Koori Trust, the Ian Potter Gallery in ACME. These are all spaces that add to our experience as Federation Square as a civic and public space. We stay, we relax, and we take in what an incredible international city that we live in. But I'm at a loss to see how the introduction of Apple does anything to enhance our public experience. The reality is, is that the Apple store is a use that could go into any retail precinct in Melbourne and it would still be hugely successful. Why on earth does it need to be located here? Fed Square doesn't need a retail attractor to be successful. It's already a tremendous and hugely successful space. Maybe Apple should look at going into Docklands instead. Hurrah, yes, Docklands. There is quite simply nothing about the location of Apple in Federation Square that is central or even partial to the success of this place. With over 100 million visits it's had opened in 2002 and being voted in the top 10 best public spaces in the world, Federation Square is universally adored and massively successful. I just simply do not understand why the State Government thinks that bringing Apple to Fed Square is in anybody's best interest, other than maybe Apple's. Now, I think we all accept that the selling off of public land for private interests isn't a new concept. But typically, when this occurs, there is some analysis undertaken about what is the best overall outcome for the community. There are times when what we planners would call net community benefit is appropriate, where there's a trade-off between the disadvantages of the loss of public space but that that it is offset by other advantages. And look, I am by nature and by trade a pragmatist and I can see that there can be circumstances where the loss or the privatisation of public land can be in the community's best interest. And a really good example of this would is the loss of parkland at Royal Park, which enabled the expansion of the Children's Hospital, which has resulted in a hospital that now performs at an international level. Now I've read that the Apple Store, is rep- which is going to of course replace this beautiful be- building behind me, will result in a reduced footprint that will allow for additional public space and those supporters say that that will be a better result for Melbourne but my reading of the materials, and I've been able to view, is that this increased public space is really designed predominantly to be the forecourt for the store itself. So I think we can all agree that that's hardly public space. And what other spaces provided is heavily fragmented, it's largely overshadowed, and really doesn't present genuine value as additional space. And what I'd like to ask the state government is, where is the analysis? Where is the real information that would enable us to undertake a thorough review of the pros and cons? Good decisions are transparent. That information is shared with the community so that it can be engaged in the process and ultimately the outcome. Now undertaking a net community benefit analysis, not a very sexy word but needs to be said, it's central to informing our government of whether the benefits associated with Apple being in this place outweigh the costs. And I've got To be honest, absolutely no idea if such an analysis has been undertaken, in part because there's just so much secrecy behind this proposal. But I think we'll all agree that it's highly unlikely that such a proposal or an analysis has been done, and I certainly can't find any evidence of it in the documentation that I've been able to find. What we do know is that there is huge community opposition to Federation Square being overtaken by Apple, with protests and petitions with 100,000 people online, protests, people like you constantly displaying their displeasure, letters to the editor, and even views of the local council, the city of Melbourne, tell us that Apple is not welcome here. There's no doubt that there is strong opposition to Apple privatising Fed Square, and that this is being done in a way that provides little, if any, benefit to the community. So given that the Fed Square is ultimately owned by the people, then the views and opinions of the people should be heard. And join with me in saying wow. no to Apple. Thank you. Thank you go.
4: Good luck.
0: This is Irie Leke. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks.
3: Yeah, that was down at the rally for Save Federation Square from um, our square, not Apple Square, and it's as as they were saying, it's been going on for quite a while now, and they don't consider it a, a done deal that the um, the it, it it still needs to be ratified. The Melbourne City Council has never been in. Um, uh, never, never supported it. They didn't. They don't support it at all. Uh, I went to the original meetings around it, and uh, the uh, person who uh, is the CEO of uh, the group that uh, runs Federation Square was talking about things like um, uh, running at a loss. Actually, it doesn't run at a loss. They talk about it as a business proposition. The uh, mm. Federation Square is actually doesn't run at a loss, according to the speakers on uh, Wednesday. The uh, they talked about things like, um, oh, Sydney is uh, running away from us and we're no longer looking like an important international city, uh, which uh, people uh, poo-pooed it on Wednesday night as a reason for why you'd want to have the Apple store in the middle there. There was some interesting things at that first meeting, which was that uh, Apple apparently is supposed to be going to give some sort of digital support to Acme. Um, I'm not quite sure what that actually means, but I can imagine that. But uh, my experience of Apple stores, I don't know if you've been to Apple stores, I just find them pretty um, amorphous, uh, supposedly terribly modern, uh, except you can never tell where you're supposed to go or what you're supposed to do. It's a a very commercial experience and uh, it's pretty outrageous that they should be using public land. And and this is part of uh, some of the reportage we've been doing on Solidarity Breakfast about public land being given over to private commercial uh, outlets for no particular reason except that uh, the big end of town or the government feels that uh, it's a way of uh, offloading uh, responsibility. I mean, what is public space? very little public space out there. Hmm. Did you know that um if you want to demonstrate outside uh a Southern Cross for example, you have to make sure that you don't stand where the shadow of the overhanging um uh roof is because they consider it to be non-public space even though it's a train station? I didn't know that. Yeah, it's so no, particular. I didn't know that. Either. Gosh. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah. But anyway, let's move on to the next stuff. Public space. <laughs> Big story. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, yes. So I had an interview this week with Dr. Patricia Ranald from the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network uh, about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Well, the current version of it, in which there's 11 countries um, yeah, still, still in the agreement. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to hear from her now about some of the issues uh, because they released a media... They put out a media release after the Senate uh, committee hearing this week. So we're going to hear from
6: her now. Yes, um, I'm Dr Patricia Ranald, and I'm the convener of the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network, (AFTNet). We're a network of 60 community organisations, including uh, environment groups, public health unions, church groups, uh, aid and development organisations, women's organisations and other community groups that advocate for fair trade based on human rights, labour rights and environmental sustainability.
0: Last week, the Labor Caucus voted to support the TPP-11 uh, and this week's Senate Standing Committee saw heavy criticism of of the deal. Why, why do you think Labor have voted it through if they uh, see so many flaws in it?
6: Well, it's very clear that Labor does have policies which uh, are contrary to what is in the TPP-11. For example, uh, Labor... Policy says very clearly that um, um, foreign investors should not have the right to sue governments. Yeah. um, As ISDS, but this is in the TPP 11. Um, Also, there are lots of restrictions on the capacity of governments to regulate essential services, and um, the um, agreement, the TPP 11, also has provisions for removing labour market testing. Uh, for um, six countries and enabling them that, that them to send um, temporary workers to Australia without first testing if local workers are available. Now, these temporary workers are in a very vulnerable position, um, unlike permanent migrants, because they're tied to one employer and they can be deported if they lose the job. So... Um, they are. We've had so many examples and academic studies showing that these workers are very exploited in Australia, and there's no um, provisions to uh, prevent that exploitation. What we want in Australia is for all workers to have the same rights and not be vulnerable to exploitation, yep. not tied to one employer and be vulnerable to exploitation. The process is that the trade negotiations started at almost 10 years ago yeah, now, yeah. Um, and, but we didn't see the result of those negotiations in any detail until the agreement was actually signed. Now, the signing of the agreement is a Cabinet decision, and it's only after that that the text is released and um, goes before a parliamentary committee, which is dominated by the government. Now, in the case of the TPP-11, we also managed to get a Senate inquiry, but both of those inquiries don't have the power to change the text. And Parliament only votes on the implementing legislation needed to implement the agreement. It doesn't vote on the whole text. So, for example, some of the worst things in it, like investor rights to sue governments, or the removal of labour market testing, that those things are not subject to a vote for parli- by Parliament. Parliament only votes on things like tariff reductions, which are needed um, to be changed immediately for the agreement to come into force. Uh, but if if the uh, that implementing legislation on tariffs is passed, then that. Um, means the whole agreement will go ahead, which is the whole text which includes these um, things which are against Labour policy and which we've been campaigning against for the last 10 years. The vote comes at the very end and it's not on the whole thing. Yeah. And I think the reason for that is that governments do want to present parliaments with a fait accompli. They don't want parliaments to be able to um, change these agreements because they want them to... Um, Lock in the um, deal that has been negotiated between the in this case the eleven countries, um, but it is undemocratic. I think that it 's evolved like this because trade agreements used to just be about things like reducing tariffs or taxes on imports, but now they um, deal with a whole range of issues uh, which can affect people 's lives i mean another big area uh, which is affected is um, through the intellectual property rights chapter, is that these agreements often strengthen monopolies on medicines, which means they effectively delay the availability of cheaper medicines. Now, normally, any rules about that in Australia, they would be domestic issues, and um, Parliament would vote on them if we were going to have longer monopolies on medicines. Um, and that went to a vote in Parliament, it probably wouldn't get through the Parliament. But if you put, put a, put it in a trade agreement uh, and present it as a done deal, which Parliament can only say yes or no to, uh, then, um, it's much harder for Parliament to refuse because of course the government will say, well, if you don't vote for this, um, implementing legislation, then you know, we won't get the benefits of the deal, which are, you know, that farmers will have a little bit more access for their exports into these 10 other countries. So it's effectively using social policies on um, things like um, uh, temporary workers, on um, essential ser- regulation of essential services, on um, medicines. Uh, it's, it's using them as bargaining chips to obtain market access. And we think that shouldn't be the case. We shouldn't have to trade off our social policies in order to get a little bit more market access for exports of wheat or sugar or whatever into other countries.
0: Yeah. And I remember some Mapuche people, indigenous people, talking about how the TPP would affect them and their struggle uh, for their land
6: Well, the problem with ISDS is what it says is that if you're a foreign investor and the government passes a law or makes a decision which you think, uh, uh, under uh, the provisions in a trade agreement, after the trade agreement comes into force, and and you think that change in law or policy would harm your investment, then you can sue the government in an international tribunal, demand compensation. Now, there's actually been a terrible recent um, case in, a, in Peru where um, the Bear, Canadian Bear Creek Mining Company, this is under Canadian Peru FTA mm. um, they um, got permission to, to have a mine in uh, an, an area of indigenous land in Peru but they failed to get informed consent from the indigenous people according to Peruvian law and so there were big demonstrations yeah. against the mine, and the Peruvian government then cancelled the mining license. Now, that was several years ago, and then the um, Bear Creek Mining Company lodged an ISDS case against that decision, and they won. And they've had a to- they were awarded a total of $36 million in compensation against the Peruvian government. So what that actually means is that the company has been rewarded because it did not, <laughs> even though it did not obtain um, consent. informed consent from, from from the Indigenous people under Peruvian law, not to mention international um, agreements on the rights of Indigenous people. So it shows that ISDS can be used to undermine land rights yeah. and um, the rights of Indigenous people. And there have been um, other cases um, where... Uh, ISDS cases. Uh, uh, foreign companies have been awarded um, compensation for um, uh, environmental. Beca- There's a Canadian case where a mining company was awarded compensation because the licence to have a quarry was uh, refused on in- environmental grounds because it was a very in- environmentally sensitive area. There's been also been cases. Um, where uh, companies have won compensation for legislation about public health. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, we all have heard about the Philip Morris Tobacco Company attempting to sue the Australian government for our plain packaging law. Now, uh, the Australian government eventually won that case on a jurisdictional issue, but um, it cost them $39 million just in legal fees to defend the case so we believe that and and labor policy says that these sorts of provisions should not be included in trade agreements because they um potentially undermine um progressive policies that um might be developed in future now the tpp11 does have an environment chapter and has a labor chapter as well but they're not legally binding and in particular the environment chapter is mostly aspirational and it doesn't mention any binding obligations uh, in relation to um, global agreements on climate change. So, um, although it says governments should um, not undermine environmental agreements and they should implement them, it's actually not um, legally binding in the same way as the rest of the agreement. I think there's no doubt that if you look at the who, which, which international companies use um, ISDS provisions to sue governments over yeah. environmental laws, some of the most frequent users are international mining companies. And Chevron has even made a public statement saying that they want ISDS clauses in um, trade agreements because um, it can, you know, this can help to prevent. Um, environmental um, regulation Mm. of mining. Uh, And, of course, the tobacco companies have systematically used it to try and undermine uh, tobacco regulation. Mm. So um, there's no doubt that um, one of the main champions of these types of agreements are global mining companies uh, which see it as a way of uh, limiting regulation of their activities. And discouraging environmental regulation. Current coalition government justifies ISDS by saying that well, Australian companies can use this provision if they're un- treated unfairly by um, other governments in the region. So they they look at it from the point of view of Australian companies. Yeah. Um, so and and of course there are Australian mining companies who do want this provision, but it's interesting that. The mining companies and um, uh, the um, Business Council of Australia, which is the hundred largest Australian corporations, are the main proponents of ISDS. Um, Smaller um, Australian companies can't use it (laughs) because um, they don't have... It's a very expensive system. It's actually a form of private arbitration. So... Governments and the company taking the case have to pay not only legal fees, but they have to pay the arbitrators as well. So it is it is a system designed for large global companies with very deep pockets.
0: Yeah, as if we need to give them more power. Yes, <laughs> um, yeah. well,
6: that's what we have been saying. Don't give more rights to global corporations yeah. that already have enormous market power. They don't need additional rights. And in fact, again, that's why... ALP policy says they don't agree with ISDS. Now, what they're saying is, well, we don't agree with ISDS, we don't agree with removal of labour market testing and other things in the TPP-11, but we'll put it through now, we'll put the legislation through now, and when we get into government, we will try to change it. But it will actually be quite difficult to negotiate changes once the agreement is in place. They will have to negotiate bilateral side letters with mm. the 10 other um, countries, and that's not an easy process. It would have been much easier for um, to say, together with the Greens and the Fender Alliance and other cross benches, no, we won't pass the legislation until these sorts of changes are made. The countries involved are Mexico, Canada, Peru, Chile, and then in, in the Asian region, it's Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei, Japan, Australia, New Zealand... Singapore, Malaysia. Um, Now, you can see that there's some very poor countries there Mm -hmm. like Peru, Vietnam, Chile. Um, And there's some middle-income countries and then there's some quite rich countries like Australia, New Zealand and Japan. Uh, So, um, for instance, in a country like Vietnam, um, the basic rules that are in the TPP about medicines, even though some of the worst ones have been removed, a lot of them will have a very bad impact in Vietnam because Vietnam has only so far signed up to very basic rules on medicines and intellectual property in the World Trade Organization whereas the TPP goes a lot further than that and uh, in Vietnam this will have an impact it, it will mean longer waits before cheaper generic drugs are available. Although the Labour caucus has made a decision, the the Senate has not yet voted on okay. um, the um, implementing legislation for the TPP-11 and they won't vote on it until after October 10 because there's there's another Senate inquiry on the legislation that's due to report then and um, since the Labor caucus decision we've had a huge reaction from our member organisations, unions and all, all the other groups. Uh, And um, we've got a new message on our website that people can send to um, their um, Labor senators uh, asking them still not to support the implementing legislation. Um, So they can go to our website, aftinet.org.au, to send that message. And a lot of other organisations are doing similar things, like GetUp has a message that you can send... um, same sort of message, and um, some other groups like ActionAid are doing the same thing. So there has been a really big public reaction against the Labor Corpus decision, and I think it's important that people keep sending those messages, because even if it doesn't change their decision, it will um, reinforce that they're doing something that most of their constituency doesn't agree with.
2: You're listening to Freezy 8.55am, the voice of the community.
3: And we're back. And who have we got in the studio? You're on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR and we've got a packed studio. Today, Fiona's got...
5: We have here in the studio laurie Ann Sharp, who's the the Australian... Sorry, Assistant Federal Secretary for the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation... Yep, to the Federation.
3: No, that's why they go <laughs> pretty high up there in the chain. Yeah,
5: ANMF. <laughs> yes, ANMF. A-N-M-F. <laughs> Welcome Laurie-Anne. thanks so much for coming this morning. It's a pleasure to have you.
7: Thank you Fiona, good morning.
5: Right, well, um I guess aged care uh, ratios, it's kind of um pretty 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 got a big profile in the media right now thanks to the Four Corners investigation, but obviously this is a long-running campaign for the uh, A-N-M-F. It's been going for a long time. And has it always, ratios has always been the core concern for the campaign?
7: Yeah, that's correct, Fiona. I mean, we've, um, you know, we've been in this space for over a decade as we've seen standards slip um, consistently in aged care. Um, we officially launched our campaign on International Nurses Day on May the 12th this year Um, and basically the essence of that is we're asking for legislated mandated ratios in aged care so there's a minimum level of um, staff mix um, to protect the vulnerable elderly. Mm. Yeah and it's just it's it's remarkable to think there
5: are no ratios at the moment and Yes. The government's view on that is very bizarre. Has that
3: related to the commercialisation of the sector?
7: Yeah, it has. I mean, we have seen a lot of the for-profits move into that sector. Um, And it is quite remarkable that um, as the campaign's sort of moving forward and getting a lot of traction, a lot of people are saying, oh, I didn't realise that there wasn't ratios in aged care because we are drawing the comparison with childcare and we know that childcare has ratios of one to four So that's actually resonated really well with the community, and people are absolutely just surprised and stunned that we don't have any staffing ratios at all in aged care. and, and, And what we know now is people are living longer. And so they're going into aged care facilities or nursing homes, um, a lot older, which means they've got usually a lot more conditions. And um, yeah. we also know that fifty percent of the elderly who going who are going into residential aged care now have uh, suffered with dementia. So there's just, you know, obviously the acuity is a lot higher. It's a time when you actually really need uh, an adequate amount of staff and 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 the right skilled and trained staff. Absolutely. Yeah.
3: Now, it's a federal government funding uh, process, isn't it?
5: That, yep. Yeah, that's correct, yeah. Yeah,
3: and uh, now that we've got this uh, new chappy in as the <laughs> Prime Minister, he's trying to appear as if he's a can-do Prime Minister, and so he said, oh, we're going to have a Royal Commission into Aged Care. But, you know, this is pretty ingenuous, isn't it?
7: Yeah, well, we we do have... Um, Mixed feelings about the announcement of the Royal Commission. Just to clarify, with the government funding, um, taxpayers pay 70% of all aged care uh, fees, so it's a highly subsidised. Um, you know, highly Mm. subsidised area um, and the rest of the fees are made up of, you know, the residence fees um, from the pension and then extra fees plus a lot of people are expected to pay a bond. Uh, On the announcement of the Royal Commission, you know, there has been countless number of reports and Senate inquiries over the last decade. Um, it was interesting timing—the announcement of the Royal Commission last Sunday, the the night before Four Corners aired. We're we're really concerned because you know there's people suffering in aged care now. There's um, really lots of vulnerable people who we who, the government need to act now. The uh, Royal mm-hmm. Commission you know this could take oh, two, takes ages yeah 2 to 3 years and then you know will they act on the recommendations and in the meantime there's more people going into aged care there's more people suffering um, you know we we know that there's been a reduction there's you know the the research has shown us there's been a 13% reduction of registered nurses since 2016 and this is at a time when you know the amount of nursing homes increased the acuity increase has increased um, and yeah. there's
3: been these other things, like I've been to <clears throat> se- of several of these demonstrations that the people who have been part of campaigning for their conditions uh, at the nursing homes, uh, they've been talking about things like the reduction of uh, registered nurses, uh, but also that uh, the um, amount of the time frame that people have to do the various practical activities like washing people and all those sorts of things, uh, it's really you know uh, cut and uh, it's all about profit.
7: Yeah well it's I mean look it's ex- you know it's ex- really hard work working in a nursing home. I've I worked in aged care um, for a short period of time and that was about nine years ago um, as a registered nurse and you know at that time um, things were really tight then and we've seen such a reduction. I mean we all know what it's like um when we have it, when we have to do things for ourselves, when you have to do it for someone else, everyone is individual. You cannot rush them. It's really hard unless you're a nurse or a carer to understand what it's like to wash someone, to dry someone, particularly when they're in, when they're frail, they're in their eighties, you know, they need time and care. And to think that that can be done in less than six minutes, That's right, it, six minutes. is just inhumane. Mm-hmm. Um, I really think that people need to think about humanity and to think about mm. what it means to care for people, particularly people who, you know, they're at the end of their life. They deserve to be valued. They deserve to be uh, treated with dignity and have respect. And to see some of the, you know, sadly, I wasn't surprised on what I saw in Four Corners. And, and in fact, you know, we will hear and see a lot more because we're hearing from our members some really terrible stories, stories where they just are expected. You know, it's like they, they feel like they're working on a production line and they are dealing with um, human lives so it's it's it's, it's mm, very heartbreaking it's just, yeah it's heartbreaking um,
5: it is it is a profit based sector and 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 on top of that the the agent the the facilities uh, have been accused of ta- you know major tax evasion as well so what is the story there
7: yeah so so um, the anmf federal office commissioned the tax justice to do a report on the six largest for profit providers who provide aged care. Now they only represent about twenty percent of the market, but um, the results of that were quite extraordinary. Um, it's it's quite a complicated thing, but I'll try and describe it. Basically, they're using these tax minimisation strategies um, to maximise profits. Now it's not it, it's not illegal. Um, but what what we're seeking and one of the recommendations that came out of that report is that, you know, we are just asking the government for more accountability um, and transparency about where that funding's going because we know that some of the large companies, Bupa, Regis, Opal, you know, they paid very little tax in the last financial year and we know this is happening at a time when they're reducing staff. They're also, um, you know, we're hearing stories about you're only allowed to use so many continence pads on a shift. Um, for example, another thing is there's been some for-profit aged care providers mention that, you know, they don't want the residents interrupted at night to protect their privacy and, you know, installing oh, right. sensor mats. Yeah, mats. So, But, you know, we, we know that, you know, a sensor mat... Uh, Once someone's fallen out of bed, the damage is done, they've fractured a hip or they've cracked their head, they're going to need to go to hospital. I mean, part of nursing and caring is assessing people before something happens. When they're agitated or restless, you actually go in there, you see what's going on, you do an assessment and you prevent an incident from happening because once the incident happens, you know, they go to hospital, then, you know, there's an ambulance, an admission to ED and when you're 87 or 88, and you've fractured really, a hip, I mean, yeah. you, you know, potentially you can you can die from that. Uh,
3: and also, yeah, and also uh, the business about that goes into a whole other thing. Uh, something I was going to say: uh, this business about reducing registered nurses and that kind of care. What What's really going on is then the more serious issues of health are then transferred to the public hospital system which is another thing that's an issue Mm. and the other thing about it is you've got ambulance because i've actually done this where you actually follow the ambulance to ensure that your parent is gets to where they need to go and don't get lost in the system because they may or may not be
7: admitted yeah that's right it's
3: really really quite soul destroying this whole process
7: yeah And, and and the other thing on that too is that um you know, because there is a reduction in qualified staff, often an ambulance is called as a backup. That's so right. they might not, you know, it might not be as severe as a fall or a fracture, but the staff just don't know what to do. That's right. So they right. call they call an ambulance. The ambulance comes and does an assessment. You know, that that's a resource that is taken away from that's public, right. and it's that state public dollars. That's exactly as well. Right. This so, is
3: pen pusher land. That's not understanding this. It's a disconnect from what's really going on in reality. Yeah. Yeah,
7: exactly. Yeah. Uh, the the other thing is too that there's been um that I didn't mention earlier that over the last 13 years there has been a very significant 400% increase in preventable deaths in nursing homes. Um and that's from falls, choking and and suicide, would you believe it? Um you know, I, I just think that, mm-hmm. you know, there's the carers and the nurses who are there are doing a remarkable job, but they mm-hmm. are, you know, absolutely under so much pressure, you know, that they they it's a low-paid workforce as well. Yeah. Um, many of them are working, you know, in in two or three facilities, um, many shifts just to sort of make ends meet. And, That's exactly and it's right. it's backbreaking work, it really is. And it's um mm. uh,
3: and and you know, what you just said like 70% of public funds are going into supporting these private institutions. I don't get that. No, but no well, but yeah, that. but it does show on on a sort of strangely positive left-handed way that our community really does care.
7: Yes, we yep.
3: want this to work.
7: Yeah, it's just that it's in the wrong hands. In some places, I mean, some well, it's a real liberal paradise, yeah, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely, and I, and you know, the thing about the government-funded money, I mean, if that was accountable and transferable in terms of it was attached to care, mm. so that you got this mm. money, and then how many care staff. Have you got – whereas at the moment, it's not. There's no – and the Aged Care Act, you know, it really needs to be um, amended so that there is that – at the moment, it just says they have to provide adequate staff. I mean, what does adequate mean? Yeah. Yep. Um, we, that's why we're seeking some, you know, ratios in there. I mean, yep. Senator Hinch did introduce um, a bill a week and a half oh, – or nearly two weeks ago um, that – that got lost in the Senate to introduce a minimum staffing level. I mean, it didn't go far enough, but it was a start. But unfortunately... Isn't that
3: interesting? So what they decide they're going to do this big number with the Royal Commission, we show that we care, when in actual fact they're going Mm -hmm. to have a Royal Commission that's going to find that all these horrible stories are true. Yeah,
7: that's, and then... But yeah, everybody the meantime, knew that already. Yeah, and in the meantime, more people... Are suffer. I mean, you know, if yeah. regulators Bastard. and governments were doing their jobs properly, yeah. you know, and we would that, need a Royal Commission. Yeah, and yeah. that
3: particular bill that Darren Hinge put forward had followed suit, then we'd know that all these lawyers that are actually in Parliament, because there's an awful lot of lawyers in there, know perfectly well that a term like adequate care is mm. an inadequate okay. statement. Yeah, exactly,
7: mm. exactly. Mm. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think should, thank you for coming in yeah, thank yeah, you yeah. so much Lorraine oh yeah. my gosh you're very welcome thanks
5: I've, yeah maybe we'll keep it'd be great to keep monitoring this issue and have you back thanks so much
7: thank you
3: Currently, there's a rally coming up.
7: Yeah, that's right. So this Wednesday, I'll just get the details, um, which is the 26th of September. Nice and early at 8am, 8, eight to nine thirty. We are having a snap rally for aged care that's being organised by the Victoria Trades Hall, and that will be on at 600 St Kilda Road in Melbourne. That's 600 St Kilda Road Why in there? Melbourne. Uh, that's actually at the front of the LASA, which is a laser. The aged care um, services. So mm-hmm. we're and Sean Rooney is the CEO, who you would have seen interviewed on Four Corners yep. last week, <laughs> dodging bullets. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's this Wednesday. <laughs> Thanks for coming in.
5: Thank you. Thanks, Laurie.
4: Choices just looks like it's Vice President Graham Swatworker's son as her senior advisor. Graham, caring business class relations, big end of town lawyer, indeed, yet another free kills the workers' alumni, so he brings a totally unbiased approach. Graham's record in defending and fighting for the rights of the caring business class was almost 100%, bringing balance to a fair work no longer just looks like a bench that is so loaded toward the evil unions and lazy avaricious workers. Graham was forced to resign from the bench because he felt overwhelmed by the pro-evil union worker bias, writing a long article explaining how caring employers are crucified under caring business class relations law and its interpretation by his pro-worker colleagues. I found it's a matter of interpretation, and I always manage to interpret it correctly, and we can be sure every time a union, particularly the evil, evil construction union, pays yet millions more in fines over heinous crimes like raising health and safety issues that under the law have nothing to do with them, every time they pay millions, they must be thankful for the pro-union bias of the bench and offer more thanks to the socialist governments of Little Kevy Rod for the Workers and Julia Gallinghard for tearing up work choices... As promised. Any doubts about the balance role Graham will play advising Kelly were scotched when the Mines and Metals Profits Association Supremo, for whom he has worked, praised him as an experienced and highly credentialed employment lawyer with a wealth of knowledge and expertise. The workers' excitement at the appointment was increased by a thoughtful True Capital Capitalist Review article from a caring business class relations advisor to the caring business class, Michael Angwin, who advised Kelly and therefore Graham, the big problem was the evil union movement's continued claims that there is inequality in the workplace when all reasonable practitioners like Michael and Kelly and Graham know there is no inequality over and above Graham's expose that the system is loaded so heavily toward the evil unions and workers. So that's a long way of saying we can look forward to some even more finely balanced caring business class relations law. As Kelly gets her act together and treats the injuries after her get all that lovely worker's super money out of evil union hands and hand it to the responsible bankers and financial institutions, Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission references blew up in her face. But that spectacular failure did show just how much she loves evil unions and workers. Displayed even more this week as she introduced a bill Wednesday, her first as Minister 4, to make it easier to sack evil union bosses and deregister evil unions altogether. She's off to a flying start. Notice yesterday, Scuttle then said Kelly was an outstanding, shining example to all true blue Aussie women, which says heaps about his attitude to women. Then again, after the Minister for Keeping Us Secure and Maintaining the Concentration Camps Razor Wire and Sinking the Boats, Constable Peter Duffer, again proved the House had confidence in him by voting to declare he had confidence in himself, one vote his own, after Macaulay Kosh the Workers and other Free Kills the Workers alumni told us he's an outstanding Minister. Which, along with Scuttlebeam's praise of Kelly, shows that lost attitude to humanity, or more so quality, comes off a very, very low base. Bringing us to just the other morning, yet another Caring Business Class Party male Minister of State, Josh M. Icebergs, assured us the party so respects women and must attract the most competent, the most brilliant, the most capable women into Parliament. And its record in the competent, brilliant, capable department is impeccable. Like Kelly and one of her Caring Business Class Relations predecessors, Michaela and former Minister for going overseas all the time. Simon, being a perfectly good little prefect, duly bash up the workers. The implication is the men, overwhelming percentage of men in Parliament, already meet the competent, brilliant, capable criteria. And again, there's no doubt Barnacle, Constable Duffer, Tiny, Eric scuttled them himself. Competent, brilliant, capable proof poor old scuttled them after every one of the few women they've got who resigns claiming she's been bullied out or faces losing pre-selection or loses pre-selection, assures us he wants more competent, brilliant, capable women in Parliament. But they must be the best person for the job. And the party history shows 80 or more percent of women are not the best person for the job. Well, let's be honest. The best man for the job. Like last week's choice of the man to replace former big supporters. Primo Malcolm Tone of Bull after them, stamped his great leadership qualities on the party by backing the one woman candidate, whom the blokes immediately threw out and settled down to choosing between three men. Finally, selecting the former ambassador to Zion, who told a caring business class party for Zion meeting, yes, they do have a Caring Business Class Party for Zion organization, told recently the Caring Business Class Party was proudly Zionist, despite a media he asserted is so blatantly pro-Palestinian, stateless, non-people terrorists. I want more competent, brilliant, capable women in Parliament, Scuttled then boasted at his huge success. And David is the best man to represent this state. Ah, nothing like a strong leader. Sadly for us, The other side of that misogyny has been suffering the cloying, indeed nauseous, opportunism of Socialist Party supremo and would-be big supremo little Billy Shorten Ambition, declaring his love for women. Always said with a mute woman, would-be minister standing behind him nodding. As he announced, for instance, the government would top up superannuation for women losing out over maternity leave and related obligations. Uh, Little Billy, the caring employers must be really upset that the public purse will pick up their responsibilities. Uh, No, no, the caring employers thoroughly endorse our pro-women policy. We bet they do. We had a follow-up question or two, like, was the timing of this announcement coincidental and wasn't super supposed to relieve the pressure on the public purse? But little Billy was too busy slobbering kisses on about 200 babies, 200 poor little kids, poor little innocents. But we've ignored... The biggest story in the whole world. Sorry it's taken us so long to get to it. So big, it required 28 pages of the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin yesterday to cover it. And yes, we know, footy finals are in full swing when they resurrect the annual headline, Sculpers on notice, state files to prosecute, etc., etc. Sure, sure, that'll work a treat. Like it's worked a treat every year we can remember. But the champion scalper of the week award has to go collectively to our airlines who increased fares to Perth from about $300 to $1,500 the second the siren sounded, sending Melbourne across the Nullarbor. Market forces, supply and demand, they explained the rip-off. And the ripped-off had the full sympathy of that filthy rich, grazier-turned-footy big supremo, Gil McLaughlin. I hope you understand the circumstances. Well, yes, we do, Gill. We've already said it. Rip off. Wonder if the non-filthy rich understand Gill's understand. And the whopping Sin has to get some sort of marks for managing to fill 28 pages over two footy matches, about 20 of them devoted to just one, a monumental achievement. We would advise those forking out their hard-earned 1500 to make sure they take out insurance. Oh, uh, yes. The highly respected industry concurred. Our extraordinarily generous policy guarantees unlimited cover. Uh, Unlimited. Certainly, once you sign up, the amounts we can rip off are unlimited. And you pay up immediately if anything happens. Put it this way. We give you an immediate response to your false claim. Reminds me, saw this ad the other night, retail mob promising 40% off all stock in store. And then the very last fading line, exceptions apply. And I thought, which bit of all is not all? Couple of finalies. Shocking expose, Lord Rupert of Whopping Sin, P1 Tuesday. Wages bonanza on Westgate Tunnel, Metro Rail. Project pay dirt. Workers, this is disgraceful, being paid to work. Okay, so the great Tollway owner, Transfer Your Money Urban, will make trillions by transferring our money into its voracious coppers for extended years and years, but that's just good business practice, not evil union and lazy avaricious worker greed. Any wonder poor Kelly needs to get those evil union bosses sacked and this blot on caring business class relations deregistered. Workers earning money whoever heard of it? Finally, finally, in the who'd be a caring employer department, distressing story, property section, true blue Aussie capitalist review, opening par, direct quote, Sydney hotels are the fourth most profitable in the Asia-Pacific region, but would deliver even higher returns if... Okay, listener, what comes next? What is the cruel barrier to these great contributors to society's higher returns? Got it. Even higher returns if labour costs were lower. Under a headline, Labor Costs Hit Hotel Profitability. Talk about greed again. Here we have caring employers providing work for these people, filling in their otherwise boring, meaningless days and nights. And what thanks do they get? The bloody workers expect to get paid at the end of the week as well. Take, take, take. Oh, who'd be a caring employer? Good morning.
3: Uh, that's really funny. I love the last bit in that uh, on concrete gang they were talking about uh, the Suki Lala was going to go to uh, um all the employers and uh, Neil Mitchell for complaining for uh, that workers get prop paid properly basically what silks <laughs> uh, Hello Humphrey, are you there? Humphrey? And Are you there, Humphrey? We've got
1: a protest outside the court because yeah. the secretary of the CFMEU here is being charged with collusive tendering. He tried to get the employers all to agree to impose a situation which would establish uh, real safety on construction sites. Oh, what, a, ACCC, what a bastard. The ACCC, you know who chase after all of these collusive tenderers, of course, and put them in court. Anyway, that's Thursday morning here. It's all part of the same struggle.
3: Yeah, it certainly is. But uh, you're going to talk about financial crisis. We're going
1: to talk about financial crises. Um, we talked about, well, we've been talking about them for some years now, haven't we? And so do all the experts. It's quite extraordinary to watch that everybody who's been commenting from all of the, um, you know, the kind of uh, authorities are all saying there's another one coming and we don't know from where and we don't know from when and we're not sure why it's going to come. Is that and the three
3: monkeys, you know, uh, blind, deaf and dumb?
1: Well, they're not, not quite on this because they're saying something's happening uh, <laughs> and they so weren't something. saying, remember, before 2008 they weren't saying, in fact, they were saying the opposite. Everything is going to be all right. Everything is going to be all right. This time, it's very intriguing to watch.
3: So that uh, was it, the Titanic, um, Titanic uh, movements.
1: In well, the... it, it has left them with this sense that there's something seriously wrong with how the system works from their point of view. I mean, they're not worried about, the, you know, the poor old, you know, the, the rest of the world population. But they're very concerned about themselves because they know, as we said last time, they don't have the resources that they did last time. There are no high interest rates to cut. You know, they can't pump out any more money. The political system's got out of control on them. So they are very worried in all those ways. We want to go back, however, to look at... Um, and, and I think it's very important, I think, for all of the left. Uh, and you can do it easily enough as I do. I mean, I, I didn't predict 2008. What I did was to stumble... You slacker.
6: June,
1: I mean, I just stumbled upon the Bank for International Settlements report in June 2007 saying we face a 1930s-style depression. And I wrote that... And sent it off to Jonathan Green as the piece to put up on Crikey, and he knocked it back because it was too depressing. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh,
1: uh, and that's I mean that ironic. is what the mass media really does. They are there to massage the egos of the investors, even places who you 'd think would be a bit more open to these things. So we do have to keep our eyes on all of those. but what I want to do this morning uh, is to look at what Marx and Engels can tell us about the nature of the financial system within the whole of the capitalist system—they're uh, our essential starting point. They're not our final word, and they would be the last people to say they were the final word. As so, I, you know, when Engels was on his deathbed. The last thing he was trying to finish to write was a piece about how the stock market had so grown in the last few years. I mean, we now think of the stock market as being a permanent part of capitalism.
3: Yeah, no, This is very interesting to and it me. it wasn't. I no. mean, there
1: was really, I mean, in effect, no stock market before the late uh, part of the 19th century. There was a bit. But, you know, compared to what it is now... Uh, And he's saying this growth, which is beginning to happen now and getting underway, this is going to alter the whole way in which crises appear in the financial system.
3: But also you say that um, 20 years after this, that uh, after Engels was uh, pontificating about the... emergence of monopolising capitals yeah. that uh, Bernican and Lenin called that stage imperialism. imperialism.
1: Yep. Monopolising capitals. That's what they talk about in imperialism when they write in 1915, 1916. Yeah. And they pick it up from there. I mean, and, I mean, and, and so does Rudolf Hilferding in his book Finance Capital, you know. Um But it is in Marx and Engels. I mean, Marx is picking up on this even before he dies in 1883. So, look, the point of that is that they were well aware that the system kept changing in order to stay in existence. You can't just get a set of rules for how it was in the beginning and say, oh, well, 200 years later, capitalism's behaving in the same way. The one way in which it has to keep on behaving in the same way is by exploiting the rest of us. That doesn't change. How it does it...
3: What are they going to do when the robots come?
1: Well, I've written an article about that, and we've actually talked about <laughs> we will talk about and that a lot of times. Why, isn't it about when, I mean, that, you know, perhaps next year we could take that up because I'm becoming more science fiction about what might happen, uh, about how we might get a system of exploitation that does without the workers altogether. But that's yeah. another story. Mm. Me too. Anyway, on we go into the financial system in two thousand and seven eight. Now, what we've got to do is to get this word financial in its proper place. Yes, it did erupt in the financial system, but it wasn't caused by the financial system. Uh, and why the, you know, the whole of the capitalist media and all the experts keep going on about the GFC and the global financial crisis is it's a good way of avoiding talking about the production system. Because once you get into the production system, one thing you have to deal with is exploitation. And they don't want to go anywhere near that. So as long as they can keep saying, oh, it's all about moving bits of finance around the world, they don't have to get near what happens to the workers.
3: That's so bloodless. Uh,
1: they are, you know, it's, all, it's all very safer. It's mean, much, much safer for them, indeed, to stay in In that part But the financial system is essential to the system I mean it's not I mean it's wrong Some people around the left say Oh the bankers are parasites All capitalists are parasites
3: Uh, um, We've got more people in the studio than usual Humphrey And uh, Rebecca wants to say something
0: Please I was just going to mention the discourse And the the language that they use When they're talking about the financial uh, system is as if it's like an entity of its own that's alive and acting like, so that's another way that they can kind of remove themselves from the picture as if they had nothing to do with it. It's just its own beast that's, you know, uh, doing these things.
1: Well, indeed. And they other, the one they love of course is, and the market decided. Yes. Uh, but this, of course, you know, we've talked about this earlier in the year, that mentality of activating the categories is, you know, that's what historical materialism, that's what Marxism fundamentally says does not happen. Human beings, as Marx says, only real living people do things. Yeah. Um, these categories, as you rightly say, and you know they keep coming up with them as they need them um, to explain why the system is working as it is um, that 's a very important part of how we have to not think in their terms, but every way you know, this you know, it is so easy because we 're surrounded. I mean, as I've said often enough on this program before, we are all afloat in a super-saturated solution of bourgeois bullshit. And it's (laughs) very, very very hard to keep ourselves out of it. But we do have to struggle, and that's what 3CR is for, and that's what these kinds of programs are for, and being able to explain this. So what we've got to do is what Marx and Engels always did, which was to penetrate the surface in search of the dynamics uh, and nothing's more superficial about that crisis than just to a point to the point that it erupts in the financial system, um, but it doesn't have its deep causes there. That is the consequences of what's going on and what's not going on inside the production and circulation system. Uh, now, here... Yeah. Again, we've got to be very, we've got to be very, um, very clear about this because it's one of the things that I fear the left really isn't very good at. It goes on about you know people on the left say, oh, we've got you know the terrible capitalists, all the, all they want to do is to be able to profit out of us. Well, yes, but no, they don't in exploiting us. When they employ us, they don't take a profit out of exploiting us. What they take out of exploiting us is surplus value. That surplus value is no use to them unless they can sell it, the commodity that it's involved in, and then they get a profit. And the best example of this at the moment, I suppose, as I say in here, is what's happened to the strawberry growers. I mean, you imagine that these strawberry growers have been employing, you know, Asian students or, you know... people have been brought here under 457s or something, and they're getting 100% surplus value out of their labour. What good has it done them if the strawberries then have to be thrown away? There's no profit because it's not sold. What Mark shows is that surplus value is where exploitation takes place. But it is only after that that it is possible to take a profit out of the exploitation,
3: and so they need to invest. Pardon, sorry, they need to invest.
1: Well, then they need to invest. Mm. Now, that's that's the next. I mean, what do they do with it? Well, as he says, they've got a choice. They can spend it all on themselves, and in which case, they then will cease to be capitalists because somebody else will come along and um, you know, and reinvest, as you say, and take over from there. Uh, but that there's three. There are the three steps. They exploit us to get surplus value. Then they sell the commodities to be able to take as big a profit as they can. And then the system only keeps going by reinvesting. And as Marx says in one of his marvellous phrases, accumulate, accumulate. That is Moses and the prophets. And he doesn't spell profits with an F, but with a PH. Um, but that's how the system works, and we have to bear that in mind.
3: Who said that Marx didn't have a sense of humour?
1: Well, well, I mean, the only people who say that are the people who either have no sense of humour themselves and don't get his jokes, or have never read any, and they're they're in the total majority, I think, of you know of who people who simply don't understand Marx um, to begin with at all. So. We have to see that, um, that this is how the capitalist system works. Um, Competition compels them, as you were suggesting, to invest on a larger scale. And that's why the system runs into the big crises that it does.
3: Do you think that uh, in the uh, 2008 arrangements leading up to that, that uh, the financial class or the capitalist class or there's actually two different groups of people actually believed that they could, in postmodernism, that they could uh, unhinge themselves from production?
1: Oh, look... Engels and Marx say that they were – I mean, people – some capitalists have always tried to do that. I mean, they've got a wonderful passage in capital where they talk about – every now and again, capitalists are seized by the delusion, they say, that you can make money out of money. Uh, And you can, but the money has to have been made in the production process by somebody else. You can then, as a financial capitalist or a speculator or a crook or something—you know, an old, you know, <laughs> straightforward crook—just come along. That
3: could be an oxymoron,
1: yeah. And 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 take uh, some of the profit that's been accumulated or, or collected in in other parts of the system. But you will not make money simply by moving bits of money around. That doesn't add to the store of real values in the society. But you can indeed make money, and that's what they were doing. And the reason they were having to do it is that from... Well, it depends how far you want to go back, but certainly from the late 70s into the 80s, there were fewer and fewer places that they could find to invest, to reinvest all of the profit that they were taking out of our surplus value that we had provided for them, um, to reinvest that... Where they would get an average rate of profit, so they had all this money sloshing around somewhere to go, so what do they do? They get um playing these games of moving money around, hoping that you know, as I say you know <laughs> somewhat later on in the program in um, the kind of notes we've got here is that that game depends upon the greater fool yeah. That. I just
3: remind the listeners that they're listening to 3CR Solidarity Breakfast and we're having a yarn with Humphrey McQueen about uh, financial crises.
1: Yeah, and as I was saying, you, know, I mean, you have to go back into the production system. I mean, they go, uh, say, oh, the financial crisis, and some of them will trace it back to you know, 1999 when America changes the rules about what the bankers are allowed to do, and that's quite important. I mean, it is important. To understand this from within the operation of the financial system i 'm not suggesting for one moment that we can understand it if we say oh well it 's all about production. Um, it is not Marx is very clear that it is a series of three circuits there is the circuit of finance there 's the circuit of production, and there 's the circuit and the circuit of the circulation. Uh, and which is really the sales effort, so all of those three things have to happen, and they're all happening simultaneously. Um, so we do need to be able to do as best we can, you know as I do, struggling along behind, trying to work out what it is that the financial system' has been up to and how it's been up to it. Um, but we we do need to know that, however, what we can't do is to do what the people who are coming up with excuses for the system keep doing and saying that's all there is. Behind it, there is the system of production, and behind the system and underpinning the system of production is exploitation, and that's what we have to stress as well, uh, because that's what you know the apologists, that's what um, you know all of the kind of you know, kind of progressive commentators they're not going to go anywhere near that. The word exploitation drives them into a frenzy. Um, they can't bear to hear it about the capitalist system. But that is the great secret that Mark reveals. So uh, the other thing which grows out of this, uh, talking about the financial system, is at the time, there hasn't been so much lately, but at the time there was a lot of talk around the left of something called fictitious capital. Um, And we were saying before, you know, about, you know, do they think they can actually make money out of money? And, you know, this is related to the notion that this, you know, this terrible thing was going around the world called fictitious capital as against there being only real capital. And here again, I think this is partly based on that mistaken belief around the left that there's kind of good capitalists who who actually engage in production and make real things like tables and chairs, and and then there are the parasites. Well, as I said before, and we can't say often enough, (laughs) all capitalists are
0: parasites.
1: (laughs) They live entirely off what we do. Mm. Um, Now, if they get down and make tables and chairs themselves, then they're adding some value but that 's not what capitalists do; they are the personifications of 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 how this process of exploitation takes place so capitalists as real capitalists uh, are entirely parasites, and that's whether they're engaged in the production of goods, whether they're engaged in the sales effort, or whether in, they're engaged in the financing. Of See, they,
3: they would say that their talent was actually aggregating capital so that all the people who were clever at making tables and chairs uh, were given the resources to be able to do it.
1: Yeah, and as Mark says, fine. Pay them the weight that you would pay to an ordinary person you employed as the supervisor. So
3: the person who's making this stuff and the person who's using their talent to aggregate the capital should be paid the same amount?
1: Well, they should be paid. I mean, in a capitalist or a, even a socialist society, people are paid according to their contributions. The, um, yeah. You know, whereas what you've got... With these other people, who Lenins refers to as mi- as merely they are the coupon clippers. Um, they just buy and sell shares and things. Um, they don't make any contribution and any sense at all, even to intensifying the exploitation of the workers. They don't, you know, they're not standing over them as foremen. They're not doing anything to it. They're just there as the owners. They are as the landlords were against the farmers. Uh, they make no contribution whatsoever. They're just on the take. Now, fictitious capital flows the kind of notion that what was going wrong was that there was fictitious fictitious capital being um, sloshing around the world, uh, that the entire problem was there. So let's ask ourselves this question because it relates to a big issue that comes up all the time. We hear this thing about shareholder value. Uh, They've been adding shareholder value.
3: What does that mean?
1: It means the price of the share. That's what it really means. Oh right. You know, let's uh, oh, come up you know, with these stupid words. You know that that you know that you know, the, the, you know, the, the shares yesterday was trading for two dollars. Now they're trading for two dollars twenty. Therefore, you've added twenty cents to shareholder value. Yeah. Now, let's understand this as best we can. Um, let's take a corporation, and it. Supposedly, you know, yesterday when trading closed in the Sydney Stock Exchange, its 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 market valuation was one hundred million.
3: That means that someone was prepared to pay that amount of money. Doesn't mean it's a real value, right? That's what you're trying to say.
1: Nobody paid a hundred million. No. What happened was, let's assume there is one hundred. Well, let's assume there are, let's say, one million shares. Yep Um, So you've got 1 million shares and 100 million Yep So each share is now valued at $100 Yep Where does that figure come from? Uh, Well it comes, as you said, because the last share traded before 4 o'clock yesterday afternoon was bought and sold for $100 Yep So what they do is they get the total number of shares and they multiply it by the last price Uh, So when they say, oh, a trillion dollars were wiped off the stock market, what does that mean? It just means that the the last price that they paid in 2008 in September, sometime in there, was much lower than it had been, say, three or four weeks earlier.
3: What are you telling us that the whole capitalist system is made up of a mirage?
1: No. There is there is real there there is there is real capital in there, and some of it is financial capital. I mean, if you've got a large amount of money and you stick it under your bed, uh, then that's not part of the capitalist system. However, if you're a big corporation, and they all have to do this, you have to have a reserve of funds. Because you're having to save up to buy the neck a lot of equipment, uh, you've got to pay wages at the end of the week, uh, you've got to buy raw materials and semi-finished goods, and for that you need uh, some kind of financial reserve. So that is, that is real money capital, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. But this... Notion that the stock market, and this is what Engels was pointing to. This is a new development that comes in the latter part of the nineteenth century. But of course, it, you know, a hundred years later, it explodes.
3: Yeah, you this know, is reputation,
1: ex, you know, explosion, which is what underpins what happens in two thousand and six and two thousand and eight. So that, uh, for example, I mean, the, the other way to see this is: okay, you've got they claim the corporation is worth one hundred million dollars. At four o'clock on Friday afternoon, try and sell all of those shares at ten o'clock on Monday morning, and see what they're worth. Yeah, like. I
3: think that's called a glut on the market. That it wouldn't would happen. Be,
1: it would be called that. I mean, there are special occasions in which you have, know, I and yeah. there is a great demand for them. And indeed, someone will, you know, someone will want to buy, you know, um, at, a, at a higher rate. But. Nobody has paid $100 million for those shares. Yeah. Um, it is It is simply multiplying the last share price by the total number of shares, and it will go up or down according to that.
3: We have to finish.
1: I know, but one thing we do have to say before we go about the capitalist system, it will never collapse of its own accord.
3: We have to push it.
1: And the reason it won't collapse of its own accord is because they have state power. Yeah. And the only way to get rid of capitalism is to overthrow state power. Go. Ahead. That's enough for one week. We'll be back in four weeks with the tendential law of the rate of profit to fall. How about that? Hoi. All right. Bye-bye. See bye. you, mate. Bye-bye, Rebecca. Bye.
2: bye.
3: Bye. We've come to the end of the program. How's yes. it been, all of you? We've got a whole team of people here. You have to all say goodbye. Goodbye. That's Tilly. Bye Tilly. <laughs> yeah. Goodbye. Yeah, that's Fiona.
0: Yes, goodbye and...
3: That's Rebecca and that's me, Annie. Yeah, well, yeah, this is a fine... Next week. Yeah, fine. Oh, well, next week we'll have... uh, We wouldn't know. We should tell people what what we're supposed to do is tell people what we actually had this week. We we went to uh, the Apple... Save uh, Fed Square from an Apple building, uh, public land for uh, public spaces for the public rather than commercial entities to such a degree that uh, they flood the uh, concerns of uh, the public out, uh, we um, moved on to uh, the TPP. Rebecca?
0: Yes, and talked to Dr Patricia Ranald about the issues that are still there, even though it's uh, yeah being put through to legislation now.
3: Yeah, yep. and then we moved on, Fiona
0: We spoke with Laurie-Anne Sharp
5: from ANMF about the, the really heated issue of aged care and the, all the work that that union's doing, that she's doing and the upcoming rally on Wednesday morning so if you yeah. can make it, 8am
3: And uh, we went on to This Is The Week That Was with Kevin and followed it up with a chat with uh, Humphrey McQueen uh, Coming up next is Asia-Pacific Currents and uh, we'll go out with a track yes. Go on Press a button. Go on, I dare you. Yeah, <laughs>
4: efficiency in progress is ours once more.
1: Hey, this is Nick from you You're listening to 3CR. Please support community
2: radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. Give money back to the people that give music to you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.